Hello, I'm Liv Bolton and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire people wanting to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of their life. My guest today is Stuart Watts. He and three friends hold the world record for the fastest rowing crossing of the Atlantic. Along with George Bigger, Dickie Taylor and Peter Robinson, Stuart rowed for almost a month from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, finishing in January 2018. And they raised a huge amount for charity. I'll reveal that figure later on in the podcast. Stuart had never really rowed before agreeing to the challenge, but he believes if you put your mind to something, you can achieve it. He has some pretty terrifying stories from the row and answers lots of burning questions. How big were the waves? What wildlife did he come across? What did they eat? How did they know where they were going? How hard was it? Stuart also has lots of tips for anyone contemplating a big physical challenge in the outdoors. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Head to theoutdoorsfix.com or Instagram to see photos of Stuart and his teammates during the row. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast if you like it. And feel free to spread the word to your family and friends. So, let's get going with the interview. Stuart, so great to meet you. Thanks. And thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to talk about your challenge and your row across the Atlantic. It was the fastest time that anyone's ever rowed across the Atlantic, wasn't it? Yeah, we're the only team to have rowed across the Atlantic in less than 30 days, yeah. And how, and how far was that? It's around 3,000 nautical miles, which are just a bit longer than a, a normal mile. <laughs> just a little bit longer. Yeah, roughly. That's <laughs> yeah. how scientific it is. That goes to show my sort of lev- level of knowledge about the sea, really. And, and so where did you go from and to? And we'll, we'll, ex- we'll explore this a lot more, but initially, where was it from and yeah, to? Yeah, so we did the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is from a place called La Gomera, which is in the Canary Islands, to Antigua in the Caribbean. And that's kind of the race route and the route that most teams attempt to um, break the world record or just cross the Atlantic. And they, they do that because of the ocean currents. So you're pulled across that far south. And if you want to come the other way, then it's kind of New York to Ireland. If that gives you an idea. You did it in how long exactly? Roughly, yeah. just 29 days, 14 hours and 70 minutes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and how, what was the previous record that you smashed? The race record previously was 34 days. Um, wow. So quite a bit less than that. But I believe, we, we actually didn't know the record previously and we didn't know that we'd broken the record until we landed so it was definitely not an objective of ours and to be honest with you I couldn't tell you what the previous world record was it wasn't something we were discussing in the boat it was a matter of just getting across as as fast as we could oh my goodness well I want to explore the lead up to that and and the people you did it with and and why Um, but firstly were you a really outdoorsy child were you into big fitness exercise challenges before I grew up on a farm, so I think it's safe to say I was outdoorsy. And I suppose, and three of, the, three of my other teammates grew up on farms as well. So there's something about that kind of upbringing that means that anything is possible. And none of us are afraid of open spaces and challenges. And I did it as a team of four, called the Four Oarsmen. Our objective was to just 
raise as much money as we could for charity and do ourselves justice. And prior to it, we've all done, I suppose all of us have played a little bit of rugby, two of the guys have played to a very high standard, and all of us are sporty, but none of us had ever rowed before. But yeah, we were all pretty active people. Yeah, so tell me about where this spark of an idea came from. Who suggested it first? Well, I think I've got to blame one of my teammates, Pete Robinson. So we'd, um, on an impulse, decided we'd cycle John O'Groats to Land's End, mm -hmm. de-supported. And when we got down there, Pete said that um, we both enjoyed it, you know, that it was tough and we had some real challenging moments. But when we got down there, he was like, God, we should do something like that, but bigger um, and for charity. And then about two weeks later, Pete created a WhatsApp group mm -hmm. called um, Atlantic Row. That's kind of, that's where it all started from. Blimey. So was it a bit of a kind of a bit of banter at first or was it or were you serious from the start? When he set it up, I was like, God, I mean, I was like, that does sound fun. And I, and I knew the other guys as well. We're all six foot four. And I'd had like two rowing lessons at some point in my life. And mm. I thought oh, that's something I could do. And I knew the other guys are pretty gritty. And we're all, like I said, we're all the same height. So I knew we'd all be able to row together. So yeah, although it was meant in jest, I think we were all committed from the start. How do you prepare for something like that? I mean, you, you hadn't rowed, like you said. Well, I suppose the physical side of it is the most obvious and the easiest, believe it or not, because we all trained a bit anyway, and we're all used to training for different sports. The hardest part was we wanted to raise as much money as possible and learning all about the boat, how the boat worked and making sure that we weren't going to make fools of ourselves. In effect, we had to build a whole business. So create a brand, build a logo, build web pages. I mean, three of us had never used Instagram before. So we all had to think about how we were going to use Instagram and Facebook and all the social media avenues that are free to try and drive um, revenue towards our charities. So that was, that can't be underestimated. That was yeah. huge. And then we were doing a whole kind of pitch to corporate sponsors and then going to the general public, begging for money as well. And so which were the two charities that you did it for? We did it for Mind and Spinal Research. Um, spinal Research um, was actually Pete Robinson's idea. And we were raising money for a guy called Ben Kendi who had a spinal injury playing rugby. And um, George's mum um, was a patron for Mind and ultimately died through um, you know, mental illness. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail about that. And all of us have lots of different reasons for both those charities. Uh, but all the money we raise, we split 50-50 between them. That's incredible and I want to at the end talk about how much you raised because it was an incredible yeah. amount. Um, but getting back to the preparation, the physical preparation then, yeah. were you having to train how many days a week? If we divide it into sections, so obviously you've got to learn to row, you've got to be physically fit, but you've also got to be um, flexible and you've also got to be heavy. And heavy can be muscle and fat, but ultimately you're never going to be able to eat enough calories to maintain your physique when you're doing two hours rowing and then half an hour sleep along with all the other avenue. You're just never going to be able to eat enough. 
So you've got to have that weight so you can lose it mm -hmm. while doing the crossing. The learning to row, um, I suppose I became a bit of the rowing nerd because I work in Hammersmith, so I could easily get to the rowing clubs down on the Thames. Great. So then the flexibility thing kind of came in later. We all started off just smashing the weights, trying to get as strong as we possibly could, but actually not getting injured becomes a really important part of it. Mm. Um, and flexibility is a big part of that as well. So then we had to combine all of those along with all of us are fully employed. So it's just we had to train outside of workouts before and after work. And then on weekends, we'd be going to and from Northumbria to train on the boat. So it's a huge time commitment. And that's just the physical side. We were having calls every Sunday because none, none of us... George and I live in London, but he's the other side of London, so it's very hard for the four of us to come together. So everything was done through WhatsApp. I mean, tens of thousands of messages through WhatsApp, emails. We'd have a call every Sunday where we'd discuss our progress. Dickie Taylor works for Accenture, so he was kind of minuting every call and all the actions from that. It can't be underestimated the time it takes. It's it's sort of two years in the preparation before. The actual race element goes by in a flash. So you started off in the Canary Islands. Yeah. So talk me through how much did the boat weigh? What kit did you have with, you know, with yourselves? So we think we were the heaviest team to ever attempt to row the Atlantic. So all of us were around 100 kilos and our boat was over a ton. And we, we took extra food and we took something, uh, I don't know how much detail you want, but we took something called an efoy, which is a way of turning um, ethanol into power. Right. So it meant the rest of the teams had nothing on, no lights on or anything in the evenings because they were trying to save power. Meanwhile, we were lit up like a Christmas tree, <laughs> making water whenever we wanted. Okay. had our satellite navigation on the whole time, but it meant our boat weighed over a ton. Mm -hmm. What food did you take? I mean, what was your diet going to be? And, and talk me through the routine. So we actually did the race in more or less ketosis. So for the final four months before the race, we had no sugar, no carbohydrates, no alcohol, wow. no caffeine and we were eating a really high fat diet to try and get our, build the mitochondria so our body could break down fat. And it's a really antisocial diet, mm -hmm. but it's a much more stable fuel source. And we didn't get hungry at all during the race. Mm. Um, and our snacks were kind of um, nuts, coconut shavings. We were allowed one kind of treat, nine bar every day. And that had a bit of chocolate on the top. So that was that, that was, was the, the trick. That was the, the highlight. Yeah. The um, the food that you mostly survive on is dehydrated food for for weight reasons. That you just mix in water. Mm -hmm. At the start of the race, we were boiling water and putting it in there. But actually, after about halfway, you just put in cold water, put in a bit too much, and just tip it down your throat because you're so tired. And so with your water supply then, how, how, had you taken a lot of water with you or what was the plan You have that? to take water with you for safety reasons, but you actually have a desalination unit on there. So you can just run, well, if you've got more power than you know what to do with, 
then you just run it whenever you want. With the routine then, how far were you trying to row a day and, and how did you break it up? So ignoring the start, which is just mayhem, and I assume every team does the same, because it's been two years in the making and unlike most other sporting events, you've got no clue on how quick a team's going to be other than looking at a team being like, they're big lads, they'll probably be <laughs> quite quick. Or they've got a couple of ex-Olympic rowers, they'll probably be quite quick, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get into it, it's as a team of four, which we were, I'm, my knowledge of what would happen in a single and double or a three, I've got no idea. But in a four, it's two hours on, two hours off. Gosh. Two hours on, and we, we giving away a tip here for anyone who wants to do it, we, one cabin was on even hours, the other cabin was on odd hours. Mm -hmm. So it meant that our shift in my cabin was one bloke was rowing two till four, the other one was rowing four till six. But in the other cabin, they were rowing three till five, five till seven. So it meant that halfway through your shift, the other team, the other team member was swapping over. Mm -hmm. And that breaks the two hours down quite nicely. But we were quite strict. If it was your two hour time to row, you really, you were expected to row for every minute of that two hour. Mm. And in your off shift, you might have some routine boat maintenance to do. It might be your turn to make the food, um, but really you're just trying to maximize rest. So mm. your routine on your off shift is, I don't know how much detail you want here. You need to strip off as quickly as possible. Right. Wash yourself with a wet wipe. Um, which you would then dry out and use as toilet roll. The, the race is really um, environmentally friendly, so all of the wet wipes are biodegradable and all the bags on the boat are biodegradable as well. That's good, yeah. If you wanted to apply any creams, you'd apply them then, because inevitably you've got loads of sores. Yeah. Then you'd need to eat, so you want to make sure you're getting down as much calories as you could. And if your teammate or cabin mate's left a nine bar on the side, you'd make sure you scoff that as well. <laughs> and then you'd um, get as much sleep as you could. And that's what you do it, four times a day, every day wow. for a month. Did you suffer from sleep deprivation? No, I, don't, I, can't, I can't explain why not, but no, your body gets used to it really quickly. Maybe because for the first two days, we had no sleep. We were just rowing as hard as we could. And I must admit, I make it sound awful, but we were loving it. Mm. We had our radio playing, stupid music, and we were just, two years had all come to fruition. We were doing so many things wrong, because none of us were washing, drying ourselves off. So that first two days, everyone had told us what we shouldn't do. We essentially did that, <laughs> which meant that we had sores from day three onwards. Mm. But we had a good time doing it. I, and you know what, I don't think we, don't think we'd change that. And the impact on your body then, you talk about sores. What, what were you wearing were you, while you were rowing? I mean, lots of people in the past have talked about rowing naked because it's the easiest way to keep you know, sores yeah. at bay. You've got to do what works for you. And we'd all thought about it before around, you know, should we try and wear some sort of rowing thing because we're all matched? But there's no way of doing it. You, you kind of commit up front. And we'd done quite a few practice rows deciding what we wouldn't wouldn't wear and what would be comfortable for each of us and sometimes you feel the cold more than others so yeah you did row naked a fair amount 
and you just get used to that pretty quickly. In terms of navigation then, what did you use? Every team has a weather router and what they try and do is put you in weather conditions that ultimately are pushing you towards the finish line. So they might tell you to go a few degrees north, a few degrees south, and they might send, we had a satellite phone. I mean, I'm making this sound more scientific than it would. In reality, you get a text message saying, roughly be in this area in three days time. Oh, wow. Or and you might be given a bearing. Uh, and then you have an auto helm, uh, which isn't the most efficient way to, to go across actually, but if you're trying to steer yourself, that's another thing to worry about. So we decided we'd take, we'd use the auto helm all the time and we'd take lots of spare parts so that we didn't have to think about navigation where possible. But the auto helms are really um, temperamental because they're meant for boats that are sailing going on a, a fixed, um, a very fixed bearing mm -hmm. for a long time. Whereas we're essentially being knocked around, blown around by every wave, every single bit of breeze takes us off course. So your auto helm's having to work really hard to maintain that bearing. So they burn out really quickly. So we decided to take, as we're heavy, we're taking loads of stuff anyway, we'll take loads of spares. But that's probably the scariest moment we'd had is our auto hound broke and it meant that we were perpendicular to the waves. Oh my God. So it meant that rather than the waves being pushing us along, yeah. it meant they were hitting the side of our boat. And these are kind of 30, 40 foot waves. And that, that's only a matter of time before you capsize. So then you're trying to manually pull it round, row, like rowing as hard as you could, all three of you, just one oar, yeah. just to pull it back around. What was going through your mind at that point? <laughs> I mean, I wish all four of us were here to give you an idea. As in, I think we're four quite pragmatic people, so it's just like, there's no point panicking, you may as well just get on and try and fix it. And all of us are the same in that, so it was just like, get it done, all row on one oar, and let's fix it and move on. And that's pretty much how we deal with that with, with everything. God, that's quite impressive. I mean, surely I mean, you must have been a little bit of panic I'm trying going to, I'm trying mind. to imagine if a film crew was there, whether that, that was definitely going through our minds. It depends, at day, at daylight, when you can see what's going on, that's okay. At night, when you can't see the waves coming, that gives you the willies a bit more. And this was at night? We had it at day, it, oh. it, at night and during the day. Oh my goodness. Um, and the other thing is, is that when you're, to give you an idea, when you're rowing, you're looking at the waves coming towards, you're never looking in the direction you're going, you're looking at the waves coming towards you. And if, in order to travel quickly, you want to try and catch the waves. And I think the biggest lie ever told is that the waves don't break in the middle of the Atlantic, which when the waves are that big, there's almost a secondary wave on the top of the wave and that can break over your boat and it pushes you down the waves. And you can be going 14, 15 knots, wow. but then the wave breaks and sub almost submerges your boat. So then you've got to wait one guy up to push the bilge. And if you're going that quickly, like when you're surfing, you're moving quickly enough for the next wave 
for you to be pushed along with that. And then you've got two waves submerging the boat. And it's difficult because you're not complaining because you're going quickly. But similarly, you're like, this isn't ideal. No. I mean, I'm freaking out inside. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, and we lost quite a lot of um, clothes and shoes and everything on deck overboard because of, for that very reason. Mm. But we're all, we all have size 12 feet and we all have the same waist size. So it just meant that we could just distribute clothes to everyone so that that negated that issue. So you're talking about these quite terrifying situations. What did your family and friends think about you going and doing this? And did you ever have a chance to chat to them while you were out there? I think it's difficult for people to comprehend I mean, I told my parents, they were like, yeah, fine, crack on, as, as in it, pretty much exactly in those words. Um, and I think my friends were of the same sort. It's like, well, if you really want to do it, mate, then you may as well go for it. And it's quite hard to imagine what it's going to be like when you're there. I told my then girlfriend that I was going to do it and she cried immediately. Um, I did say I wasn't going to do it. If she wasn't happy, I wasn't going to do it. Um, and it didn't take her long. She was like, well, if your heart's set on it, then you'll have to do it. I was like, okay, I'm doing it then. We're always taught to be, or I was brought up to be really independent. So whatever you want to do, nothing is off the, uh, nothing's off the list. If that's what's going to make you content, then get on with it. And any satellite phone calls or anything like that? Or are you off grid? Do you know what? It's very, diff- it's very difficult. I called my fiance every week. And I called home twice, I think. It's, it's actually harder to call her. It's hard. And there were two times when I felt really, or three times when I felt really emotional. Never down with what we were doing, but it's very hard to imagine the physical stress you're on and mental stress. I mean, we did it as a team of four, so you're kind of doing it with your mates and you're able to talk about any issues you've got. And if anyone was rowing with me, I mean, I was talking for the full two hours. (laughs) I was going for it. Um, So, yeah, because once you start to imagine what home life's like, having a bed that isn't wet, being able to sleep for even four hours would be the dream, you know, or get a full sleep cycle in, not having, I mean, I haven't talked about how bad the sores are. The pain is unrelenting. It's, it's, you have pressure sores in your bum that you just have pus coming out of and you have to sit on that you know you're doing that for 12 hours a day, every day. And that sort of happened from a week in. And I stupidly chose to do, use Sudocrem, um, which I'm sure is a brilliant product for some people. But if you apply it four times a day, every day, and you never really wash it off, it leads to a pretty nasty rash, I could say that much. And there's no, it's not getting any daylight. So then you end up having to dry your sensitive areas in the sun on your off shift when you really want to be sleeping. Yeah. So there's so many things going through your mind. And when there's a small issue on the boat, it can really test you. And it's not just physically testing you, it's testing you on can you just 
keep it under wraps and keep going. Um, and I could see why you could just have a meltdown. So those those phone calls could be pretty emotional. Though. Yeah. So the yeah. the first I think Christmas Day, my dad kindly put me on loudspeaker in the middle of of my uncle's kitchen and to like paint the picture. It's a farmhouse in Herefordshire, and they've all just had too much to eat and drink and just put me on loudspeaker and I'm there in a cabin. I think it had just rained and our um, mattress was just drenched. Um, and there's just, no, and you just like, God, this is my 40 minutes off. And it, so you, it's lovely to speak to home, but I found it really difficult. Mm. And I have my other teammates, I don't know if they did or they didn't, but for me it was difficult. I think my, my then fiance could understand how upsetting I found calls. Mm. So you, I was only speaking for sort of five or ten minutes. And so you've talked about some of the scariest parts and then the, and the really high, hard parts, mm. but emotionally and physically, but what, what was the highlight for you? Was it some beautiful sunset or what, what when you oh, really thought God. this is it? Yeah, I mean, I love physical activity. So it's draining. But I'm, you know, I'm loving it anyway. Um, you're doing it with your friends and you're talking about, there's no time limit on conversations. So you, unlike the rest of your life, everything's limited. You almost want to, you know, hurry up, tell your story, because then I'm gonna tell my story, then you can tell me your story. Whereas if you've got 30 days, 12 hours a day, it's like, you know, if you've got a good story to tell, take your time so you really get to know and share everything with your teammates so you're there talking and we were going quickly and for most of the race we we're in the lead so that kind of feels good and then the conditions even when they're we had some days where it was really calm really sunny which you'd imagine would be idyllic but actually it was when it was a bit rough and a bit gritty and then suddenly, you know, either the sun would rise or you'd get a sunset or you'd see, we had this little storm petrol that we'd see and you, it, everything like that is just amazing. Even if a smaller thing is you look around and I'm sure you've seen it when you stand on the beach and you look out to sea and there's like a storm in the distance and you can see the rain hitting the sea. And even that's just special and there's no, you don't have to rush off to something else. You just sit there and enjoy it. And in my case, I was willing it towards us to cool me down. But in my teammate Pete's case, he was willing it to stay away because I don't know, for his point of view, he wasn't, he was feeling the cold a bit. And so did you see any wildlife when you were out there? We saw three different sightings of whales. The oh, first wow. was a maybe two days out from Lagomera, we saw some whales feeding and breaching. And you know when you see a whole pod of whales come up and just group, grab um, schools of fish, we saw that. Wow. Which was amazing. And that was probably 50 metres from us. That's incredible. And then there were two separate occasions where we had um, a big minky whale come and swim right alongside us. And then we had... Uh, uh, a cow and a calf come alongside us as well. And just because our boat 
There's obviously no engine and it's flat bottom. They come up and they're really inquisitive. But I don't want to oversell the nature side of things because it's, it is amazing. But we probably only saw whales for 15 minutes of 30 days. Yeah. So it, it is amazing, but it's not a big part of it. Uh, uh, the rest of it's just barren. Well, not barren ocean. You're just looking at the sky, the clouds, the sea. In my case, as I was rowing the back of um, my teammate's head, because that's, you know, that's <laughs> studied the, it well. <laughs> yeah, that's the rowing. Yeah. You'd been rowing for you know days and days. When was that point that you realised, okay, well, we've been in the lead, but we could actually win this thing, and and we might actually also set a record. Uh, we didn't know we'd broken the record until we hit land. Um, we didn't even really discuss it. Like I said before, we're a, we're a team, a team of four, and we're all, although we're similar in lots, of, we're all different in lots of ways, and. I, ha I see life really positively and that's been reinforced by luck and you know good fortune so if I really set my mind to something things tend to work out all right whether or not that's because I perceive them to work out all right or whether or not they have worked all right so even from sort of when we overtook the Antiguan team midway across the Atlantic I was like guys we're in here you know we, we've done it Whereas um, some of my other teammates, I don't want to say who they are, you know, they don't reinf they haven't had that reinforcement, and they, you know, even believed up until a day before we came in that something could go wrong and that we'd be overtaken, and all of us hard work had been for um, for nothing, and it's um, and it's part of a team, you know, and that whole kind of having someone more positive, also someone who's more reserved, actually makes for a great team. Because it means that you're, rather than I was like, oh, we could probably throw some of, uh, you know, if we're not eating that food, we could just um, throw it overboard, feed the fish with it, because we're not gonna need it. We're gonna do this in 35 days. And <laughs> in hindsight, we finished with no food at all because we needed it all. So having a team of four of me on the boat would have been a complete bloody disaster. <laughs> so it's about getting that, that balance. And how did you know where the other teams were? Was it through the radio or was it? Yeah, just through um, Dickie's dad's a dairy farmer up in Northumbria. And God knows what hours he worked. Dairy farmers work stupid hours anyway. But we get a text message. This happened after about six days we'd figured out or he'd figured out that the app there's an app to follow the race was updated every four hours mm. so we weren't looking at a, uh, a map we simply get a text message going in the last 24 hours you have traveled at 3.4 knots and you've traveled so many miles and then he would say the Antiguan team had Travel, is traveling at such and such knots and they've traveled so many miles and you are 10 nautical miles ahead of them. Right. So we get an, a feeling for that. That was great, but it meant that every four hours you, 
if you'd fallen behind or something had happened, you would, we take it that would spur us on. Yeah. If, we, if we gained miles, brilliant, let's go. If we'd lost miles, brilliant, let's go. So it's all like a mental thing. And so coming into Antigua then, what, what were you feeling? Of, when we came into the um, English Harbour, the, it's like a sensory overload. It's, it's an amazing, Antigua is an amazing place anyway. But all the super yachts were there, firing their flares on their massive air horns. Wow. It was a um, Friday night, so there were steel bands playing. A couple of thousand people came to see us in. Everyone's screaming. It's oh like a goodness. massive night. And we were like, we were ecstatic, but we were incredibly fatigued. And believe it or not, the last sort of day, and I'm sure other teams feel this as well, maybe they, maybe they don't, there is a sense that it's coming to an end and two years of preparation and everything and is coming to an end. And I think we had gone as hard as we possibly could. And in truth, we'd started to row three up we didn't have loads of calories left. We didn't have much food left. And we, w we weren't low, but we, were, we wanted to get there. And I, I think we could have seen land four hours before someone even shouted, oh, you know, we're there. You know, we're nearly there. Because we just wanted, we wanted to get there. We, <laughs> we wanted it to be over, but we didn't we also didn't want it to be over. Yeah. I think physically we wanted it to be over, but mentally we were, you know, conscious that it was coming to an end. And who did you have there welcoming you in? Did you have family, friends? Yes, yeah, so um, unbeknownst to us, because the speed we crossed changed quite a bit, everyone had to, they'd all book their flights, they all had to rebook them and rebook <laughs> them again. Quicker. And we had some friends who weren't able to come when we landed, but all my family and friends and fiance had sorted themselves out and landed the day that we arrived. Oh, wow. And it's the same for the rest of my teammates. And you get there and um, you do stumble off the boat. Is it your, like I said, we didn't, Pete and I didn't stand up for a month. So your legs have no idea what's going on. You know, you're kind of just rowing. Your hands are in a claw shape and your legs, you're only used to being sat down and yeah. So it is, it's mental. It's really, um, yeah, it's a really full on experience. And I can could, I could shut my eyes and still feel it now, what it, what it felt like to stand on, on dry land. Amazing, and then how did you find out that you'd just broken the record for the quickest ever crossing? It the was Atlantic? announced, it was announced really? and we got there. Yeah, we had um, uh, an, it's not impromptu they do a kind of announcement for every time a team lands and obviously we knew we'd won the race which ultimately was our um we want to do ourselves justice right so in setting off and winning the race we knew we would raise more money and we raised a further thirty thousand pounds from the general public we think because of that very reason because we got a load more pr um, from winning the race. So from our point of view, that was job done. And we knew we'd broken the race record. 
ahead of time, we'd spoken to one of the race organisers, but the world record, it was announced when we landed there. Oh my goodness. And then did you all, how did you react to that? I think, um, it's not that we didn't care. We obviously cared, but it was just an added bonus. It was an added bonus. And I think for any team that's going to do it, all that you can hope for is to win the race because so much of it is weather related. Um, Our crossing, along with, you know, people who came in second, third, fourth, fifth, they were all have broken the race record, previous race record. And that's because we had such bad conditions. It was so quick. So tell us, how much did you finally raise for those two charities? We raised just over £750,000. Wow, that's incredible. It was so hard raising the money. Harder than doing it, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But I think you've got to go on it on all fronts. We wanted to be really professional and build our brand logo and have that avenue to pitch to corporate businesses. Um, Then we also had trying to milk our network as much as possible. We had... um, a big event, which I have to thank um, Pergola on the roof for. They provided all the alcohol for free and we arranged for um, a big charity auction, which raised just over £100,000 as well. Wow. I mean, congratulations to everybody. That, yeah. that is really, really wonderful. Yeah. And um, so it's been, been a little while now since you, since you finished that. Yeah. And, um, have you had any desire to do any more challenges or have you, I mean, you're, you're obviously back at work. I know that actually your trip was only a, taking holiday to, yeah, to do so the challenge. Yeah, so I did, luckily the challenge went well. So um, I was able to do the challenge just on holiday. Mm. Um, and two of my other teammates were pretty much straight back to work as well. Subsequently, it's difficult getting back into it. I actually had a really productive work year in the lead up to the race because you have to streamline your whole life actually work life I was able to just be really efficient and I don't know I was being more direct but I had a really good year at work as well coming back has been a massive challenge because you're not gunning towards that next big thing so I've started getting back into cycling lined up a few just done a triathlon this weekend and I'm doing the Maratona in a few you know, months time. But it's meant having to l- lose 10 kilos, right. which has been a bit of a pain. <laughs> um, but I've done it and it's been nice to train for something else. And we've talked about doing something again as a team. We would not row the Atlantic again. It's t- as in, it couldn't have gone much better. All that could happen is something could go wrong. Plus, we also know how miserable parts of that are. So, you know, we, the, the unknown is now known. We definitely do something together as a four again, although I don't know what and I don't know when. Oh, well, watch this space. Yeah, but we're all, do, we're, all, uh, we're all doing our own things, our own kind of weekend adventures anyway. And it's, it's good fun. And if you've had to give up two years of your life, it's really hard on relationships and friends and everyone. I'm only really getting back in touch with a lot of my mates because it, 
it's difficult when you've got to be you've got to be so selfish to to do something like that great i mean it worked out great but you do you've got to understand the sacrifices required If we're talking about three people who have inspired you and, and your challenges, well, your massive challenge, um, who would they be? I'd say um, during the challenge, we poured really hard on why we were doing the race um, and what we were looking to get out of it in raising the money. So it would definitely have been Ben Kennedy and George's mum. I mean, we talked about that a lot on the boat in those low times to try and keep us going. In the build-up, it would be great to hear what my, what my other teammates are thinking as well. But when I was younger, I watched um, James Cracknell and Ben Fogel do their row. Yes. And I think it was at an impressionable age then. And I definitely thought about that and I'd watched the documentary about it. Um, and having done the rowing beforehand, I had a bit more of a clue about how good James Cracknell was at rowing and what it actually requires to do that. So they were a, a motivation for sure. Coming up at the end of the podcast, your real outdoors fix. A minute of the sounds of nature to divert your mind away from daily life. But now back to Stuart for his tips and advice. So tips for people who want to perhaps take on a massive challenge and adventure like yours. What do you think those would be? I think it's an option for everybody. Wow. I don't think there's any... The, and it's something I'm really passionate about, is that I think the only limiting factor is your own imagination and what you're willing to do to achieve that. And if you're, in order to row, you can't underestimate how hard it is to raise funds. You know, it's the boring truth behind it, is that it takes a huge amount of commitment. And I think the physical training side of it for us, I think was actually the easiest part. And it's the most, yeah, it's gruelling, it's tiring, but we all enjoy it anyway. And we were starting from a base where we were all quite fit. George actually had to go through a huge amount of physio in order to be right for it. Um, and he's mentally tough anyway, so he was able to put, put himself through that. If you're going to do it as a team, you need to be prepared to understand it's not just doing it with your mates at their best. You're also doing it with your mates at their worst. And we agreed up front what we were looking to get out of the race. And it meant that we were all able to pull in that direction. Disgusting pun in there as well. But that's important because you don't want that friction. Mm -hmm. um, because I, could Im I couldn't imagine what it's like doing that, struggling with the pain and everything that you're going through on a daily basis and there being animosity yeah. while you're doing it. And don't forget, the boat's only 20 foot long and the actual bit that you inhabit is even smaller. So there's no escaping it. So you, if you're going to do it as a team, pick wisely. People always want to know about the physical side of it, but I think it's just commitment. As in, if you're willing to commit to it and do it, 
then you can do anything. I, I, I genuinely believe that. Um, and I've told my mum that she should row the Atlantic, you know. Wow. And I, I, think, I think she'd be so good at it. I think being, being bloody-minded helps. I think really, as in, you, when it gets tough, you have to think, okay, you know, this is, this is why I've signed up to do it. And that's, that's an advantage. Your health is so important. Making sure that you're tr doing what is required to make sure you're injury free, or if you've got injuries, you're rehabbing them, or understanding what your limitations are, so you're not gonna aggravate injuries. And it's about managing that sensibly. We'd had quite a few, we'd spoken about it on board, around what would happen if someone got injured or how we would change our rowing technique or and all those other different things and and rowing is quite good because it's low impact but it is quite hard on the back mm -hmm. so you've got loads of things to consider and, and all sorts of events like that there's a team that did it actually the the team we bought our boat off were a team that were ex-military and one of them had no legs and one of them only had one leg and you think rowing is predominantly a, a, a leg-based activity. It shows that disability shouldn't be a, um, a consideration. What I should say is think about it thoroughly and what the commitment is going to be, what commitment is going to be required up front. In reality, <laughs> I think if you're going to do it, then go for it. As in, from our point of view, we're like, okay, it's actually easy to back out of this if we haven't got a boat. So pretty much the first thing we did was buy a boat. It's like, okay, we've spent 25 grand on a boat. We are doing this. And over half the people that enter the race that we did, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, over half of them don't get to the start line. And that's because, although they've talked about it, and they might have built a web page and a logo, you have to fully commit to it so people realise, you know, this is happening, this is not doing it is not an option. Um, and I think the bigger the event, the more you have to be committed to it. Stuart, it's been really wonderful to speak to you and I could sit here and talk to you for hours about it. Um, but thank you for sharing it and, and we look forward to potentially something else that you four guys get up to. We are actually doing a, what we've done and aligned with mind is we are actually doing a documentary oh. called on the surface which we're just going through the process of um, the early process of that now oh wow well i can't wait to to see that and, and thank you so much again thank you wow what an achievement if you're enjoying the outdoors fix please subscribe to it and mention it to your family and friends and if you'd like to rate it on itunes that'd be fantastic there are also lots more photos and info about the podcast and guests on theoutdoorsfix.com or on Instagram at theoutdoorsfix. The next episode coming out in a couple of weeks is all about Susanna Cruikshank. She's an open water and wild swimming guide in the Lake District. Make sure to tune in for her episode when it's out. Now, time for some sounds from nature and an opportunity to relax. This time is the sound of walking through waist-high long grass during my through hike of the South Island of New Zealand. <laughs>